are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Uh, the vision of Emmanuel Church is to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. And so what we're doing during this series is taking different phrases of that statement and really examining them in detail. So uh, week one, uh, Ben led us through the real Jesus, right? We, we think this is the most important part, really the fountainhead that the rest of the vision uh, flows from. Last week, John Tavius led us through a family of disciples, that part of the phrase, looking at Acts chapter 2. and What a beautiful picture of, of Christ's church uh, living together in community. And so this week, I'm focusing on living, uh, with an emphasis on that word, living to make the real Jesus known. Um, so we're going to do that from Hebrews chapter 12. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 12, um, we're going to get the last couple verses of chapter 12 and on into chapter 13. So Hebrews 12, 28 through 13, 6 is what we're going to cover this morning. I'll give you just a second if you want to find that. We'll read it together. Starting in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable Worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pause and pray uh, just one quick minute and then uh, we'll dive in. Let's pray. Father, help us in this time. Lord, help us as we seek to learn how to live faithfully here in Birmingham, live in a way that makes you known. Father, we just ask, Lord, that we would be receptive to your word, ask that you'd speak through it. Father, we're leaning on you and trusting in you as the, as the teacher this morning through your spirit. And so we ask things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, my assertion from this text this morning will be that uh, that we can live in a way uh, that helps reveal who Jesus is, or that we as his church can live in a way that conceals who Jesus is. I'll say it another way, um, that we can live in a way that clarifies or enhances the ability of those around us to truly see the beauty and greatness of Christ, or we can live in a way that impairs or clouds or hides their ability to be able to see the Christ of scriptures. And it has to do with how we live. And so Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, I know we're jumping in this week, it's written to Jewish believers, right? And they were raised under Judaism and then converted to Christianity. 
And so the primary point of Hebrews, it's one of the reasons I really like it, is that this old form of, of Judaism has changed and it's now fulfilled by Christ. And so there's a high, what theologians call a high Christology in Hebrews. And so the author is going through all these great links to lift high Christ, that he's saying Jesus is truer and greater and better. He's the heir of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God, that Christ is superior to angels, superior to Moses. He's a great high priest, and he's made a once and for all sacrifice, right? He's really good. And so as we get to the end of chapter 12, uh, the author of Hebrews is, is starting to transition. And he's saying, in light of who Christ is, let me describe what acceptable worship looks like, like an acceptable life looks like. So that's verse 28. We'll read it again. It says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And so for the author of Hebrews, the way in which these Jewish believers were to live is an offering of worship. It sounds a lot like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? That I urge you to present your bodies, what Paul says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that this is your true worship. So, so not just what we do in a corporate gathering, but how we live every piece of our life is worship. And so for us, Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our behalf has pleased the Father. And so through our union with him, that we are to now worship and live our life as a sacrifice in everything we do. One commentator writes on these verses 28 and 29, he says, They're a key link in introducing the vital issue of worship that is pleasing to God. The content of this wholehearted service to God, the content of what this wholehearted service to God should be like is unpacked through the exhortations that follow. So that's, that's kind of what we'll be looking at. What does this life that makes Jesus known look like as we get into Hebrews chapter 13? And the author starts painting this, this description of what, um, what this life looks like. And it's a beautiful way of life, no doubt, um, but it's also countercultural. It's to some strange and my thought this morning is I've been asking myself over the last couple of weeks is, I wonder, are we, are we really living or are willing to live like this? Are we truly willing to live in this way? So how do we live to make the real Jesus known? What does this look like? So I think we'll see five things from this, this text this morning. The first is really clear. It's right from verse 1 that reads, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Continue. So point number one for us to live in a way that makes Jesus known to Birmingham and beyond is to truly love our brothers and sisters. So it's encouraging here that this seems to be taking place already. He's saying let it continue. Remember last week we were reminded to, to live as a family of disciples, that we are marked by brotherly love because we're in a family, right? That, so the question this morning is do we really love our brothers and sisters? Do we love our church family, our family of faith? You know, we're, when we are brought into relationship with Christ, we're adopted by God the Father, right? But we're not only children, right? We are adopted into a family. And so we're sons and daughters of the king, but that makes us brothers and sisters 
with one another. So if when God calls you to himself, he calls you into a family, the people that God places in your life are there for a reason. We should love them. And this helps make the real Jesus known. John 13 says this, Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. What is it? If you have love for one another. So the way in which the Christian community loves each other demonstrates Christ. This can be attractive even to those who don't know Christ. They can see it and go, hey, there's something peculiar going on there. It may not always be attractive, but it can be. Tim Chester and, and Steve Timmis uh, write this. It says, we need to be communities of love. And we need to be seen to be communities of love. People need to encounter the church. Listen to this. They need to encounter the church as a network of relationships rather than a meeting you attend or a place you enter. So do you love your brothers and sisters, even those who may not agree with you on some things or the ones you feel like you don't have much in common with? We use this language of brother and sister a lot. I don't know about for you guys. This is like uh, really confusing for my children. Um, uh, so like, for instance, last week, someone from our GC was uh, dropping something off and he was heading out the door. And I was like, I said, thanks, brother. And uh, shut the door. And Ezra's like, he's not really your brother. And but it was kind of like, is he like, like, like Uncle Mark, and I never knew, you know, and, um, and I was like, no, he's not really my brother, so I go in the room, and then I come back, I'm like, well, son, like, actually, he is my brother, I'm trying to explain this, this reality, uh, and it's confusing, our kids never know who their uncle is, they're like, all right, so is this, like, are you for real, or like, you know, it's kind of one of those, like, you know, you know, brother in the church deal, um, do you guys remember uh, a couple summers ago, we went through um, a great book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Did you, you guys remember that? I know some of you guys were there for that. And he is, uh, he, he's essentially saying, among other things, but one of the things he says in this book is that we can have a danger um, in a church community to having this overly idealistic view of, of, of community. And we can kind of like, have this thing called a wish dream is what he calls it in our head. And that we can actually love our wish dream of what we hope and think and, um, and idealize church community as we can love our wish dream for a community more than the actual community that we're in. That we love our wish dream more than the living, breathing brothers and sisters in our church. He says it like this. Um, that those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of the Christian community. It was really powerful for me, that study. So we want to live as family, making the real Jesus known. And one of the best ways you can do that here at Emmanuel, I, I grabbed one of these from the back. This is a list of our gospel communities right here. And so this is kind of in the foyer on that shelf. And so really from the inception of our church, we've held that what we do in homes and gospel communities each week is just as important and just as um, forming for us in our faith as what we do on a Sunday morning. And so all, there's, there's tons of one another commands throughout Scripture which are really difficult to, uh, I would say impossible, to, um, um, to benefit from or to interact with if you're not living in close community with other brothers and sisters. And so we want to, to push back against a 
a brand of, of doing church that says, hey, I'm just coming to a meeting once a week, right? That we want to live life as family. So if you're missing out on this blessing right here, um, there's info and um, times and contact info, all that. Grab one of those on the way out. We'd love to get you connected uh, to one of those uh, gospel communities. So, so one of the ways we make the real Jesus known, we live or we truly love our brothers and sisters. Verse 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So the second way we make the real Jesus known through how we live is we practice biblical hospitality. You see, hospitality was really important during this time. Travel was difficult. It was dangerous. Travelers and outsiders were dependent on the hospitality of others. It's difficult for us to connect with, right? Like we can, we have safe roads, you know, we, we, we can, we'll sometimes leave on a road trip and we're not even really sure where we're staying that night. We'll just see how, kind of how far we get, how the kids are acting and then book a Airbnb or a hotel. There's restaurants and gas stations, even in the smallest of towns, we have emergency roadside assistance. So you may be going, oh, so is hospitality really important for us? in our culture. What I'll contend to you this morning is that it's really an attitude. It's a posture. And it's a response to how God has welcomed us in. So being willing to open your home and welcome people in, it's vital. So it's interesting, this phrase in verse 2 that we translate hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In the original language, it's one word. And it's this word, philoxenia. All right, so we may be familiar with the word Philadelphia. That was in verse 1, right? And so Adelphoi is brother. So Philadelphia is love of the brother. This is Philoxenia. So xenos means stranger or foreigner. It's where we get our word xenophobia, right? A fear, a prejudice, a dislike towards outsiders, towards people who are different. And so it's interesting that the author of Hebrews is saying, verse 1, you need to be filled with Philadelphia. Verse 2, you need to be filled with philoxenia, a love for the stranger. Isn't that good? It's much more than just, hey, I might be willing to, to open my home up or be a little bit inconvenienced. But the posture of my heart is to love the outsider, love the people not in our community of faith, that they are not the enemy. Why is this a big deal, right? Why is hospitality such a big deal throughout the scriptures? It's even mentioned as a qualification of leadership. Why is this a big deal? Ephesians 2, let's not forget who we are, church. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that we were strangers, we were separated, we were aliens, and he welcomed us and brought us home. So church, don't miss it. We are gathered here this morning. We are redeemed people because of God's hospitality, because he sought us out and welcomed us in, so we should turn and do likewise. It's a posture, it's a lifestyle 
So don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I know some of you are just like, get to this phrase here. I want to talk about this. Uh, For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So uh, I had to read some commentaries on this one this week. But um, so I think this is referencing Genesis chapter 18, where uh, Abraham's there and he's visited by these three individuals. And so it's kind of like the reader of Genesis knows more than Abraham does what's going on. But these individuals, these men turn out to be angels, and one is actually the angel of the Lord. And so Abraham shows him great hospitality, right? Do you remember this story? And, um, and the angel of the Lord says to them, in a year, even though Sarah's very old, in a year, you're going to have a son. And so Sarah laughs. Do you remember that? Um, and so then in a year later, they do have a son, and they name him Isaac, which means he laughs. And so, um, so what does this mean for us? I don't think it means, you know, um, that, um, that there's, pro- there's an angel planted in Birmingham that's like walking around, you know, parks. And if you, um, uh, if you just practice enough hospitality, you might luck up and invite the angel and they'll do something cool at your house for dinner. Um, although I just want to say it, like if you, if you feel like you might've entertained an angel, like I'm here for that story. All right. I will pause life to, to hear that story, but, um, the Lord certainly can work through ways that are, uh, that are spiritual. And, and I think some of us might do well to even be uh, sensitive or aware that there's, there's spiritual warfare and different realities going on, to even be sensitive to the Lord working in these ways. However, I think the main point of this statement is to say we just don't know who God's going to put in our path. Like if we open our lives, if we open our homes, we just don't know who God is going to put in our path and that we shouldn't show partiality based on Hey, we think this person's important. We think they might, you know, a friendship with him might be able to benefit me, right? Um, That we should just open our home and let the Lord direct people to us. And so isn't it true that the Lord has a way of of sovereignly using, think about your life, he sovereignly uses things that, that just seem like common events, or it seems like on the surface these are ordinary things and he's sovereignly working them. So, so we don't know. Um, some of you might be entertaining angels soon. I won't say it can't happen, um, but, but the point, I think, is that we need to open our home. So how do we live to make the real Jesus known? Firstly, we truly love our brothers and sisters. Second, we're filled with philoxenia. We're, we practice biblical hospitality. Thirdly, we care for those not treated justly. It comes straight out of verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you were also in the body. As I read, it seems that the the author of Hebrews has particularly in mind those who are in prison or or imprisoned wrongly and specifically those who had been imprisoned uh, for their faith. So they were victims of injustice. Hebrews 10 references this persecution that was going on in days in the past. So there's an encouragement to these believers to remember the prisoner, to to care for them, to demonstrate this brotherly love that was talked about in verse 1, to demonstrate it towards them. And it's kind of this, as, as one commentator put it, this imaginative sympathy, right? Remember those in prison as though you were imprisoned, to consider their plight, to have compassion, to care for them, that just because you're not experiencing that pain doesn't mean you don't have to worry about it. The author extends this, though, extends past the prisoner. He says, remember those who are mistreated, so so don't just limit your compassion to the prisoner, although that's good, but, but remember all who are mistreated. 
Compassion for the widow. Compassion for the orphan, for the refugee, for the immigrant, for the unborn, the oppressed, the poor. Compassion for all who are mistreated. That should be a mark of how we live. So how does this heart of compassion towards the vulnerable, towards the mistreated, how does that make Jesus known? It's because that was his heart, right? That's how he lived. Matthew 25, you remember his words? At the end, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And those hearing it said, no, I don't remember you in prison. I don't think we did that. And he said, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That, that was his heart, that he would look at crowds and, and he would have compassion because he said they're, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So as Christ's people, we should also have that heart that we should love, care for, advocate for, support all who are mistreated to the best of our ability. It's how we make Christ known. We truly love our brothers and sisters. We practice biblical hospitality. Thirdly, we care for those not treated justly. Fourthly, this is interesting. We're faithful in our marriages. Number four, from verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So it's interesting that one of the ways in which we make Jesus known is in how we relate in our marriages. So it says, let marriage be held in honor among all, that it's to be considered valuable and prized and precious. And so if you're a married individual this morning, are you treating your marriage in that way? Are you treating your spouse as valuable and precious? That we're instructed to hold marriage um, in honor, so I think that means supporting one another in our marriages and, and encouraging one another. And if you're a single brother or sister, I, I want you to hear me say that now, I think the text is saying marriage is precious, it's honorable, it's not ultimate, right? That, that, that marriage isn't more pleasing to the Lord than singleness. But when it's undertaken, it needs to be done so honorably. And so clearly what the author has in mind, the main way we honor our marriage is faithfulness to our spouse. He warns against defiling the marriage bed. He warns against adultery. So the idea is clear that sex within marriage is right and good. Sex outside of marriage is sin. He warns that God will judge the adulterer. So brother or sister, you know, if, you have, if you're in here, if you hear this later, if you've been unfaithful to your spouse and you haven't um, confessed that, I just want to encourage you, you, you can't sweep that under the rug. We encourage you to have boldness to repent and seek reconciliation. And if you're sitting there going, of course I haven't, you know, uh, had sex outside of marriage with someone else besides my spouse, I want you to remember what Christ said, right? He expanded this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? That, that this is a heart issue as well. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is startling language to us. <clears throat> this term that he uses right here, he says, warns against adultery. And then he also warns against sexual immorality. 
It's this word, the word for sexual immorality is porneia. It's this general term that includes all forms of sexual immorality. It's, of course, the word we get our word pornography from. Such an addictive and easy accessible thing and I think very directly related to holding your marriage in honor to not defiling your marriage pornography never delivers what it's promised or what it promises and you'd be wrong brother or sister to think that it's harmless John Owen Puritan you remember says be killing sin or it will be killing you this is where we need community to bring us in, to help us fight these things. So he's warning the Hebrews against adultery, warning them and expanding it against all forms of sexual immorality through this word porneia. And he extends this warning to just to any sexual relationship outside of husband and wife within marriage. But why does this matter? Like, why is this such a big deal? Isn't, isn't the marriage relationship just between the husband and wife? Like, why, why is this such a big deal? Why is this biblical sexual ethic such a big deal to the author here? Well, you remember the purpose of marriage, right? You remember from Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, and that the way we honor two becoming one, it makes Jesus known, the way in which we approach that. And I know that's difficult in our culture, and I know that seems like, hey, uh, that, that's, not, that, that's not that like cutting edge, right? Exactly, but it is difficult to have a marriage that, that models Christ well. And so I'm praying for you guys, I'm praying for myself as well. So we truly love our brothers and sisters. We practice biblical hospitality. We care for those not treated justly. We're faithful in our marriages. Number five, we're content, not loving money. Are you seeing this, this kind of lifestyle start to come into, come into view here? You're like, hey, this is, um, this is it's almost like, a, like, a, like a, if a group of people can live like this, it is a bit of a unicorn, right? Um, Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So it'd be foolish of us to be dismissive of this, right? Uh, materialism is just baked into our culture, right? It's the seduction of money is powerful. So we, can, we read or we could read in Hebrews 10 that, that in earlier days these believers have been subjected to abuse and arrest. That some of them have lost their possessions. So they had their property plundered. I'm sure it would have been easy for them to be enamored with the thought of regaining that security and wealth. But the author tells them, don't love money, because how we treat our money, like these other things, it's a heart issue. Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Contentment, it really is difficult, though, isn't it? It really is difficult. We're often fooled into thinking that our discontentment is because of our circumstances, right? But really, contentment is a heart issue that Paul tells us in Philippians 4 that, that he can be content in any situation. He knows how to be brought high. He knows how to be brought low. He knows how to have plenty. He knows how to be in want. And the secret, he says, is Christ's strength, like counting on Christ's provision. 
Paul Tripp says this, that maybe the most subtle indication of a love of money is an ongoing chronic discontentment in me and that no matter what I have, I'm still not content. I wonder if that's you this morning. You've been around someone who's just content. It goes hand in hand in my mind with, with being joyful. Man, it's just it's so intoxicating, right? It's so good. Likewise, if you've been around someone who just no matter what happens, they're discontent. And it's such a, um, it's such a sad thing. So if we are to make Jesus known, well, don't chase money. Be content. Well, how can we be that way? Verse 5 continues and tells us, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's where we get our contentment from. It's from his presence that he is with us. You see, in all these things and really in our life, it's so easy for us to, to view our life through this individualistic lens. It's our Western culture. It's the soup we swim in to be consumed with self. The individual is ultimate. The individual has the right to pursue our desires in a path that we think will lead to satisfaction. And I honestly think that apart from Christ, that's a logical way to think. But the fact is, the gospel says the exact opposite, that all of these things we've talked about this morning, they're not primarily for my individual satisfaction. And they are actually means by which I can display Christ to our world, which, after all, by the way, caveat, gives us joy and satisfaction, right? So my money, what do, what do I mean by this? My money, it's, um, it's not for my personal pleasure, I'm a steward. The way in which I handle it demonstrates what I truly treasure. So the purpose of my money is so that I can make a Jesus who satisfies more than material possessions known. My marriage, it's not about my comfort. It's not about me getting my way. It's a relationship where I can display what Christ's sacrificial love is like. So if we do it right, our marriages make Jesus known. Our sexuality, it's not just about individual enjoyment. It's not about my right to be gratified. It's a way to demonstrate that Christ satisfies above all, and I'm living for that pleasure. Compassion for those around us, for those unjustly treated. It's a way for us to love our world so that they know what the heart of God is like. Our homes, they're not for us to boast in. They're not just a, a sanctuary of our comfort. They're places where we can show hospitality, places where we can demonstrate philoxenia, love of the stranger, so that we can make a Jesus who loves strangers so that we can make him known. And the church, our faith family, it doesn't exist to serve me. It's not about me getting catered to this is a community where I can love and serve my brothers and sisters that we might love each other in such a way that makes Jesus known. That's a powerful thought, right? So Lord, help us in these things. We need to grow in them. If we live like this, it will demand a gospel explanation. And this will be strange, and some will even pity this way of life. But to some, it would be beautiful. So this is a tall order. I want you to see verse 6 as well. 
It says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. There's a reminder that Christ is our helper and he'll never leave us and forsake us. That as we've walked through these instructions this morning, as the author of Hebrews has painted this way of life, no doubt we're considering our own lives, all of us, right? And no doubt there are points where we come along and go, man, I really need to grow in that, or I'm kind of weak in that area, or that may have been convicting. But I want you to take heart, because if you have that realization, that means the Spirit is working on you, and He's working through the Word. And that's kind of, that's kind of the whole point, right? That, that He's molding us into Christ's image. He's helping us live in a way that demonstrates Christ more faithfully. And take heart that we have help. The Lord is our helper. All throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is actually called the helper. That's kind of his nickname. Christ doesn't leave us on our own, that, that he's the vine, we're the branches, right? Remain in him, we'll bear much fruit, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So lean on him. He is with you to help you. And we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear man. Truthfully, it says here rhetorically, what can man do to me? But truthfully, man can do a lot of awful things to us. It can hurt us, steal from us, kill us, manipulate us, um, all of these sorts of things. But man can't separate us from Christ. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Man can't thwart the plans of God. That, that man can't stop God from using difficult circumstances for your good and his glory. There's no need to fear that he's with us. He won't forsake us. So in conclusion, church, what I want to say to you is that eventually we will tell the truth about the God we worship by the life we live. It will come out what we are worshiping. So by God's grace, let's live in a way that tells the truth about who the real Jesus is as Christ's people. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll continue. Let's pray. Father, help us in these things. Father, we are here as imperfect people. Lord, we're wanting as Emmanuel Church to be a, an accurate and faithful display of who you are. Father, we want people to look at our lives and see you more clearly. Lord, we don't want people to look at our lives and, and question Christian truth claims about you. Father, help us in these things. Father, we are, uh, we are weak. We are feeble. Father, we are dependent on you. We want to live in these ways, but honestly, Lord, as Apostle Paul says, the spirit is willing and the, the flesh is weak, so we need you to work in us. We need the helper to help us. Father, I pray for these precious brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, I pray that they'd, they'd go from here with a zeal to live faithfully and a zeal to live to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.